Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. There is a library of sorts in Corvallis. It doesn't hold books, but living things. Thousands of species of berries, fruit trees, nut trees, mint, and hops. It's a USDA National Clonal Germplasm Repository, one of a handful of centers around the country dedicated to preserving diversity in the country's key crops. Nala Basile is a plant geneticist at the repository. Lori Reinhold is a horticulturalist. They both serve as curators of this collection, and they both join me now. Welcome to Think Out Loud. Thank you you very much for having us. Nala, first, for the uninitiated, which included me until yesterday, what is germplasm? Um, It is basically genetic resources. They are plants or other organisms. Yeah, they are plants. (laughs) Well, so how does a germplasm repository differ from a seed bank? Um. Both of them, okay, there are clonal germplasm repositories and seed repositories. We are a clonal germplasm repository for plants that are vegetatively propagated. So in our case, instead of storing each of the accessions or each of the plants as seeds, we store them as living plants. And so for the, L- L- Lori, yes. why is that necessary? I mean, uh, clearly it, I shouldn't say clearly, I assume it takes up way much, a, a lot more space, way more space to have thousands of pear trees than thousands of pear seeds. Why is it that you need the whole trees? Yeah. So a way I like to explain it is um, the reason for that is cross-pollination. But to describe that a little bit more, um, if you take a seed from a Bartlett pear, for example, and plant that seed, it will be it will be. a child of that parent plant. So it will be only partially, um, the genetic material will only be partially conserved. So um, in order to preserve that um, genetic identity, you have to actually take a piece of that mother tree in order to make one that's identical to it. Um, And again, that's due to cross-pollination. So there is... um, sexual reproduction that causes the uh, seed to be different from the parent. And so if these different varieties of crops, of, of trees or plants, if they're important in, in some way, and if you want to have that version, you need that, that actual plant that you could take a, a cutting from uh, to propagate it as opposed to just relying on seeds because the seeds are going to be different. Exactly. So for some of our, we do also maintain collections of wild species. And so some of those are seed, but for any cultivar, so any named um, like 
fruit or nut species, for example, berry species, those are genetically identical to the parent. So, right, you take a cutting or for a tree crop, we call it scion wood, and you essentially cut a twig off. And you can either um, encourage that to grow its own roots or you can graft it onto a rootstock and grow a tree that way. But um, back to my Bartlett pear example, every Bartlett pear is genetically identical to the original Bartlett pear by through this process of clonal propagation. Hmm. Nala, can you give us a sense for just the the breadth of the the plants um, that you have at the repository? Yes, we have about thirteen thousand accessions, but they represent some. I mean, they are represented by. I think close to 30,000 plants. Some are in containers and some are trees in the field or uh, like blueberry shrub in the field. They are planted all individually. Hmm. And how many different cultivars or varieties of, of a single berry might there be? <laughs> Hundreds, uh, if not thousands. Um, for example, in strawberry, our collection is close to 2,000 accessions. And I would say uh, in terms of cultivars, we probably have, uh, I would say, 800. 800 different, different versions of strawberries alone. Yes, from all over the world, yes. Can you give us a sense for the variety just among the strawberries? So in what uh, so they are um, from different breeding programs from different countries they have different traits you know the color of the fruit is different on the inside you know we have some white fruited strawberries we have red fruited strawberries the flavor is different so there are a lot of differences uh, between different cultivars Lori what about pear varieties yeah, so a very similar story. Um, for pear, you probably have seen about four or five different types in the grocery store, maybe a few more at a local farmer's market or something. Um, but we have 2,400 different types of pears uh, from all over the world, again. And um, they, they range in diversity and geographic regions and the traits they hold similar to what Nala said. And I mean, just I'm... I'm wondering about size, for example. What's the the size difference between some of the smaller pears uh, in that sort of magical sounding orchard and the larger ones? Yeah, so um, the smaller ones are maybe more, and, and these are more of the wild species, are about the size of um, a marble. They can be that small. Hmm. Um, like a crab or- apple size. Even smaller. Huh. Even smaller than a crab apple, some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the biggest pair I've seen in the orchard was actually last year. And it was, um, I don't know, maybe it was about six to eight inches tall, I think. So it was it was a very large pair. So they definitely range um, in size. Hmm. Like the size of a small papaya. Huh. Yes. Are you allowed to to wander around and and eat these things or are they just they have to stay for science? 
Um, absolutely. We can wander around. It's, um, I mean, I would even consider it part of our job <laughs> to learn about them. Um, out of all of those thousands of trees, I have to say that not all of them are delicious. Um, but yeah, we, um, some of them, you know, if they're part of a study, then we identify those um, and maybe we're saving the fruit for um, some particular reason. But um, a lot of the trees, we can go out there and um, and some of the other crops, too, that produce fruit. Not all of our we don't let all of our crops produce fruit um, in order to help maintain um their identity but um we yes we do go out and explore and try all of the different ones and some of them you do definitely end up spitting out <laughs> <laughs> now is, is that the case for the uh, for the smaller fruits as well yes and we also hold open houses um we haven't since covid for our blueberry collection and our pear collection for the public to come and and try different uh, types Hmm. You know, I, I mentioned this is a kind of library, and, and I, I saw that metaphor used um, in earlier reporting. Does that metaphor work for you, I mean, making the two of you librarians? Yeah, it. Um, I that resonates with me. I think we have our own sort of Dewey Decimal System where we uh, categorize our the plants in our collections. Um, as curators, we determine you know how to maintain and manage and care for um, these crops, similar to a librarian would. And um, another important piece of that, I think, is um, the work we put in to determine what to add to the collection and what gaps exist in the diversity. Um, so I, I like the, the librarian ex, uh, uh, comparison. Well, Nala, so how, how do you think about gaps? I mean, wh what does it mean to have a gap, say, in the Blackberry collection? So, you know, each of our crops, um, we have a curator and we have an advisory committee called the Crop Germplasm Com Committee. It's a committee of experts in the crop that we work with. They advise the curator. And for each crop, we write a vulnerability statement about the status of that crop in the in the at the repository and the status of genetic resources worldwide. And in our collection, what um I guess what is what is the gap that we need to fill? Uh, do we not have strawberries from Alaska that we'd like to add because of a certain reason? You know, because we'd like adaptation to that environment. We'd like a representation of that trait so that it can be used by breeders to meet needs in the future hmm. or or right now. And I guess so. I'm imagining just to go with the Alaska example, uh, shorter uh, or longer light in the summer, for example, uh, but maybe a whole different world of pests. Um, but I mean, so is that, is that the kind of thing that would be helpful to have in terms of genetic diversity? Right. You know, you want different traits. We we are striving for representation of the traits in a species or in a, in a crop so that, you know, when we have a problem like a disease in California, we can find among the strawberries one um, plant that has that resistance that we can 
uh, introgress into our cultivars or, you know, yeah. Lori Reinhold, does that mean that, I don't know, plant detectives are fanning out around the country right now or around the world actively looking for, you know, potentially useful varietals? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of people either in, you know, the academic community or um, in the scientific community or even a lot of, um, there's a lot of like home grower interest as well in this sort of uh, topic of fruit exploring. Um, so again, as Nahala mentioned, we get together with these advisory groups and kind of learn about what may exist in uh, different parts of the world. Um, so if we find out about something, sometimes that person um, who identifies something unique or what they think might be unique will let us know. And we as curators determine whether to integrate that into our collection or if we want to learn more about it. Um, so yeah, this is this is a thing that's ongoing and um, that we're always working on. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the National Repository in Corvallis. It's home to thousands of varieties of berries and fruit trees and other important crops. Um, many of which are particularly important in the Northwest. I'm talking with two of the curators from this repository, Nala Basil and Lori Reinhold. Have either of you been out somewhere and chanced upon what you thought would actually be a good candidate for the repository? Yes, I have once. Um I'm right now an acting curator. It wasn't always my job. Um I've been acting as a plant geneticist until our curator retired. So that's when I picked it up. But um, I'm from Lebanon and um, I had picked um, seeds from a blackberry there and brought it here to the breeder um, who grew it and found that it makes a lot, a lot of flowers. There are two breeding programs, public breeding programs of blackberry in the U.S. One is in Arkansas and one is in Corvallis. And so they both grew those seeds and then uh, evaluated the plants resulting from the seeds and crossed them with the elite cultivars. In Arkansas, they're working on releasing a new dwarf um, blackberry that has this Lebanese blackberry in the background. Releasing meaning it could become commercially available. Right. That's exactly what breeders do. You know, they evaluate for years, and then when they see something um, in collaboration with the growers that has potential for a specific market, they give it a name and release it. And they, this was exciting for breeders because the one that you found had a lot of flowers, meaning a lot of fruit? Yes, huh. exactly. Well, so um, this gets to the, the interesting dual purposes, or maybe even more than two, of this repository. Because traditionally, when I've thought about seed banks, I've thought about disasters and and you know the end of the world and making sure that we can eat when there's some terrible global blight so we'll go into the vault and take out the seeds and try to rebuild civilization somehow i mean i think about worst case scenarios but you're also talking about just the agricultural capitalism and and better yields or different flavors so how does that work how how do 
commercial growers get attached to the the stuff in these repositories? Is that a question for Lori or me? Uh, whoever would rather answer it. <laughs> Lori, you go ahead and give it a try. <laughs> okay. Um, so we... You know, we have some interaction with um, what we consider our stakeholders. Um, and then there's also, you know, those stakeholders are usually working with like land grant institutions like Oregon State University, for example. And we have a lot of overlap with different um, academic institutions as well. And so I think coming, you know, their needs are usually made known in some sort of um, format to the scientific community. And then that um, comes back to us. And so oftentimes one of our one aspect of our mission is to distribute material. And so um, scientists who are working on resolving some of um, these issues that are important to growers and uh, stakeholders, um, they would request material from us that um, they want to evaluate to help um, mitigate some of these issues. So you could send them, say, some cuttings, and they could they could work with them, investigate them, propagate them, and see what happens. Exactly. So that's a very um, that's a large part of what we do and why we exist is to distribute the material that we have here to people that are trying to um, solve all sorts of um, not only problems, but again, you know, integrate different traits into uh, different programs that are of, um, you know, commercial interest or of some other uh, interest to to the industry. Laura, though, I've read that, um, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, the members of the public, you know, hobby gardeners, backyard gardeners, um, they started increasingly reaching out to repositories around the country asking if they could get cuttings as well, um, if they could, you know, get the uh, something to graft onto their own rootstock. Um, and that nationwide, that was actually swamping the these repositories, the, the people who worked there and and taking them away from what had been sort of their core work. Is that still a problem? Yeah, so that is true. And I think it became very evident when folks were spending a lot of time at home uh, when we were all um, quarantining from the pandemic. Um, so there was a really large increase, but what the national germplasm system has done is we've integrated a non-research request tool or NRR tool as part of our requesting process. And so we really, you know, we have limited resources and we want to make sure they're going to the, um, places where we can best serve the public. Um, so that has really been able to help us filter out um, and make sure we are, you know, distributing to people um, that are using this more for academic or research purposes and not um, just for backyard growers. So our um, database is publicly, well, there's a public facing side of our database, I guess, and that's where people are able to submit requests um, for material. So. It is available to the public, but again, we have this filter that um, folks have to go through uh, to justify uh, why are they why they're receiving the material or why they want the material. 
Nala, what could these repositories mean for for all of us in the face of uh, our ever hotter world? It really means that we have a resource to use so that um, we have plans that adapt to extreme environments or to all to the changes that we continue to face. It's really a resource for all of us. Nala Basile and Lori Reinhold, thanks very much. Thank you. Nala Basile and Lori Reinhold are both curators at the USDA's National Clonal Germplasm Repository in Corvallis.